Welcome back to another Traumedy Podcast. This is Ken Allen bringing you another episode, one of two coming up. I found that uh, the subject matter is ultimately fascinating to me. And in the attempt to get this all together in, in one huge podcast, I realized with the amount of info that I wanted to address and uh, the amount that is so inherent to us as a species and to the U.S. specifically, I had to break it down into at least two episodes, which is the reason why it's taking a little longer for me to get out this series. Remember, you can find us on TraumedyPodcast.com, on Stitcher Radio, as well as iTunes. Tell your friends, tell your family, and tell anybody who may benefit from this particular episode on addiction. On the most addictive drug known to mankind. And I'm summoning my best Dan Carlin for this episode because... Although I want it to be remained uh, light <clears throat> and scientific, it's pretty heavy. Um, it's it's pretty potent, just like the drug itself. That drug I'm talking about is heroin. And if you know anyone who's suffering from a heroin addiction or opiates, which is a huge epidemic right now in our country and worldwide, please send them to the podcast where I have outreach numbers for people in case they can find a way around their addiction for a short period of time to reach out and get help for their addictions to this drug. I can't tell you that I'm terrified by this drug, and yet I find it Absolutely fascinating. We know that nothing good ever comes from heroin. There's never been anybody in history that said, I took heroin and eventually I got my life together. And I'm a better person because I did heroin, because I used this narcotic. And yet, despite the public service announcements, despite all of the outreach programs, despite the cautionary tales that we have from celebrities that have overdosed, the gifted, incredible artists, the friends and family who were heroes in war, the lifesavers that went through chronic illness, that went from pain medications and finally fell to the bottom of their lives by taking this drug and either overdosing or finally getting clean, but destroying their lives along the, pro- the process. Nothing will stop people from taking this drug. And there are physiological reasons and there are sociological reasons for it. I was talking to my brother, Ryan, about it. He said, what's on the next podcast? I said, I'm doing one on heroin. He said, Why? They said, because it's, it's a riveting subject. I don't know. I'm obsessed with it. Luckily, I'm not on it. And I have some uh, experience from a, a caregiver's point of view that has always kept me away from it, luckily. Um, <clears throat> and I think also I have uh, other things going for me, like a strong family unit and a sense of responsibility and meaning in my life. And I don't need to go to that to get a euphoric feeling. Uh, Being in the job that I'm in, I get my sustenance from helping people that have this problem, that have become addicts. And I've seen the uh, unflinching horrors that occur because of this drug. And it's kept me away, luckily. I would say to people that, If you're curious, you should go work at a heroin outreach clinic where they hand out methadone and you see the walking dead come in and get their smack and all of the troubles that they have. 
patients have more or less said to me, I've had two lives. One is before heroin and then everything else is after I took heroin. And they're always, always trying to get back from the reeling effects of, of heroin. And that alone terrifies me. It's like, why would you subject yourself to something that once you've had it, you will miss and you will always think, eh, yeah, it's great having a family and friends and millions of dollars, but it's not like fixing. It's not like uh, getting a good heroin cookup and just a, a wash out into the ephemeral euphoria of the drug and just shutting down. And oh my God, how crazy is it that somebody would do that? Voluntarily decide to destroy their lives one hit at a time and go down that mine shaft to the point where there's no more light and you love the darkness. Uh, when I was talking to my brother about it, he said, well, dude, people are stupid, man. And I, I said, absolutely, people are stupid. He goes, or, you know, all the doctors now are prescribing all these opiates and they take them away from people and then they got to go seek it out and find it in other places. And that's where we get all these other epidemics of people getting hooked on heroin. And so he alone already sees that it's more than just being stupid, or in this case, I'd say ignorant or naive to it. Maybe they're just in some way not educated as to what could happen. Although you can't really say that. You go, man, haven't they seen any movies on it? Haven't they seen what happens with it? But it it goes further than that. There's got to be some other sociological issues that are occurring along with their lives that are causing this. Remember that it's a pain drug and it will help you with your pain. That can be physical in the case of rehabbing patients or it could be mental. There's always this kind of malaise that will exist in society where you have a sense of meaninglessness. In the 20th century, we've called it modernism, postmodernism, and we always say it's 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 partly because of World War One and that that realization that we're fighting these wars for no reason, right? And that 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 spawned the whole T. S. Eliot modernist and James Joyce and this belief that there's an ultimate uh, existential meaningless to the world. And so what the hell, let's shoot up, forget about it all. It doesn't matter anyway. But that has always existed. We've just put new nomenclature on it. And we have to remember that nothing is new under the sun, let alone the poppy plant and man's addiction to this drug. We've used it. It's integral to our biology. And there will always be someone out there that has the tendency to push it a little bit more. And because of that, we will always deal with this type of epidemic. Now, listen, <clears throat> I'm trying to channel my best Dan Carlin here. And I apologize because I am no Dan Carlin. I, uh, If you haven't listened to him, please listen to Hardcore History or Common Sense by Dan Carlin. He is uh, my idol when it comes to breaking down the history and putting it into personal perspective as well as nation or worldwide view. And that's what we're going to try and do on this two-part series. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a little bit of hay fever, which, by the way, was one of the reasons to give children heroin when it was first created. But I promise you, we'll not be taking any of that while... Taking or doing this podcast or at any time afterwards. But it makes you wonder, if if I were a kid at that age and first introduced to it, would I be on it? Would I have overdosed? Or would I have just kind of taken it as a medication and forgotten about it? Who knows? Who is the person who gets addicted? And a story about addiction is something other than this podcast. 
In my personal opinion, I don't think that we'll ever rid our race of addiction. There will always be outliers that, for one reason or another, through one pain or another, will be addicted. We see prostitutes, drug addicts, abused people, orphans, they're all on it. Did they start heroin? Did they take it first and then decide that, well, whatever I need to do to get this drug via, be it prostitution, be it living on the streets, that's fine as long as I get the drug. Or was it vice versa? Were they first homeless? Were they first prostitutes on the street? And this is the only way that they can alleviate their pain. It's an insane concept to think that we're going to rid ourselves of it. But at least for now, let's delve into what it is. Here's a brief history on heroin. You can't necessarily start off on heroin. We have to go back to what heroin is and the initial drug, the essential drug, that of the poppy, that of opium. And if you don't know, opium comes from the poppy, originated somewhere in the Middle East and uh, Eastern Europe in that region and has been used by man since time out of mind. We have stories in cuneiform documenting Mesopotamian doctors using opium to treat pain, headaches, injury in battle, menstrual cramps, and respiratory illnesses. And not just Mesopotamia, but Egypt, Rome, Greece. Anywhere where there's written language, we can document doctors administering this drug for their patients. And even in those times, we have documentation of people that have been abusing it. See, what's crazy about the drug is that we have receptors in our body. Our DNA has created synapses that respond to this drug. And because of that, it's like a key and lock situation. It's The drug goes in and we get effects. Now, if you've had pain meds before opiates or opioids, as they're now commonly called, you understand that when you're in severe pain, there's that distancing from it. I had it after my surgery and I had a love affair with Dilaudid. I couldn't believe that I could be in such severe pain in one second, and then after an injection of Dilaudid, I could be completely distracted, alleviated, distanced from that. And be in this kind of euphoric, um, yet lucid state. And if you want to listen to me on that drug, go back and listen to, I think it's After the Knife, sometime in November of 2016 where I did one from the recovery uh, bed. And I was having a hell of a good time, I got to tell you. It has wonderful analgesic properties. I've never forgotten that. And I think that's one of the reasons why this, again, has fascinated me so much, is to think, so from there, what would I be like if I continued that use? And become one of these people that I would that I'm so afraid to be and yet still transfixed by when I see them and I want to question them and talk to them about why did they start what is your personal story on it um, <clears throat> when I would work at the ER during my clinicals uh, I'd be working on heroin addicts that were IV drug addicts and we had to get our number of IV sticks And you're just learning how to get IVs. And these people are the perfect people to learn on because half of their veins are sclerotic. They're all scarred over. But they have a few veins that still work, like their fingers, like in between their fingers, or their jugular veins, or wherever. But 
you could talk to them and they'd say, I, I know you're going to try and get that vein there, buddy, but uh, that's closed up. You're not getting anywhere. And the first time, maybe the second time, I went, okay, and I still tried. And he goes, I'm telling, okay. And sure enough, nothing happened. But then third patient comes around. I said, okay, well, where can I get one? He says, right here on this first and second knuckle. Do you see that right there? And I and he'd hold his hand up to me, and I'd see it. And I'd go, oh, that's tough. He goes, I know, you're going to need to get like a 22 or like a 24 gauge. Because it's going to be way difficult to get in there. And he would sit there. I remember this guy literally coached me into getting an intravenous line between his knuckles. And he went, there you go. Oh, look at that. You got a flashback. You know, and he congratulated me when I got an IV stick on him. So they're just, it's such an interesting patient, such an interesting style and and it's been in, integral to my growth as a medic and my uh, transition from being someone who believes he's going to be showing up on every call and doing life-saving measures to someone who believes they're going to stop somebody from overdosing and pushes all of the Narcan and puts someone into immediate withdrawals, causing them to be violently ill, get the shakes, vomiting all over my ambulance to someone who learned give them a little bit so that their breathing comes back their pulse comes up to then just talking to them on a humanitarian level I guess on a one-to-one basis and realizing we're really just there for them and I can do this or that if need be but otherwise what makes them tick What's going on there? So, as I said, heroin is physiologically linked to the human body. The endorphins that our body produces after, let's say, a, a, a huge, a huge workout, you know, it's huge. And, it's, and it might be the best, might be the best workout. I don't know, someone said, you did the best workout I've ever seen. Big workouts. Post-delivery or big runs or somewhere where you've exerted yourself in a large amount of pain was probably required in order to get to that point. Your body will produce endorphins and many of those endorphins go to the same pain receptors that opiates do. And I think there's a little shortcut and a, and a terrible shortcut that exists where if you can just push the endorphins without doing the physical labor required to get that chemical reward, you've now deleted the need to perform that workout, to perform that function that keeps you as a functioning human being. In other words, you don't, as a caveman, you don't have to go on the hunt and chase down the deer, or as a group, you know, chase the mammoth and kill it and fight. And therefore, get the reward after you've done that. It's almost your body's feedback to say, you see the feeling you get after you have accomplished this feat. If we can just take the medication, if we can just smoke the opium, that feeling is there. And you didn't have to do anything. And suddenly, you don't do anything. And like I said, from the beginning of mankind, we have written documentation of not only the profound treatment and the benefits of it, but the tendency to abuse it. Remember the Odyssey? There's a chapter in that called The Lotus Eaters. And that's the story of Odysseus and his crew landing on this island. Probably around Turkey, if you were to break it down and, and look at where these things all occurred. Somewhere in, the, in Turkey or somewhere in the isles there, where they become addicted to the lotus. And most scholars say that's, that's the poppy, that's, that's opium, and these people were taking opium. And 
Odysseus has to struggle and fight his crew to get them back on the ship. And they're fighting him and saying, no, no. And they, he leaves with his crew, but just by the skin of his teeth does he get them out of that. And even if it's not supposed to be a real story about that, it's the story of addiction. It's the story of not doing anything. Let's just sit and waste away, which is the tendency for this. Uh, anybody watch Game of Thrones? They're always talking about uh, if someone's in pain, please, you know, take the milk of the poppy. And what they're talking about is opium. And they always say, but don't overdo it. You want your senses to be strong. Don't overdo the milk of the poppy. Uh, in Braveheart, where he gets like that little that little juice and then the, the queen kisses him and he spits it out. He wants to have all of his senses ready for the for the for the scene, for the end scene. Um you know that this is something that will always be integral to mankind. And uh, because of that, we're going to have some issues with it. In fact, you know, the term morphine comes from Morpheus or Morphia, which is the Greek god or goddess of dreams, uh, which, again, was produced later in terms of the opiate drug, but has much more profound effects on smaller doses. And there's an interesting thing that happens in medicine and modern culture and its tendency in science and in culture itself to want to take something and boil it down, literally and figuratively, to its most essential form. To find out what is the what is the catalyst? What is the what is the prime mover? So we had physicians already working with this drug, and you have to remember this is a time before we had antibiotics. We didn't half of the people would rely on holistic medications. Um, let's not downplay the use of you know witchcraft, quote unquote. Where it were, it, it was, it was people working with nature, finding drugs in nature and finding ways to use that drug to benefit or in many ways to poison other people. But as we started to grow as a society, as we start to try and distill down the most effective parts of a drug, and actually boil down the most effective things in society. How to how do we how do we take the essence of this and use that to the maximum and alleviate all of the periphery, all of the side effects, all of the other stuff? We have this this philosophy in Western civilization called atomistic, where we like to take a broad picture and scale it down to a single thing and say, was this it? Was this the stone that was thrown into the lake that caused the ripple effect to cause all of this stuff, right? Uh, in, in Eastern medicine, we see more of a more of a holistic effect. I don't mean holy, but I mean H-W-H, holistic effect. You see a lot in Eastern medicine, it's take this in tandem with this medication, with this type of exercise, and... When you do all of these things in conjunction with one another, that's going to provide the overall beneficial effects. But for other cultural reasons, which I, I'll leave to Dan Carlin to get into um, and, and other social philosophers, in, in Western medicine and in Western society, we tend to try and find that one essential thing, that atom that can change everything. And and when you see this happening, and let's let's take let's take it to a very um, obvious thing nowadays. Let's take a wonder drug. We're trying to find the wonder drug that does it all. You know, we believed before the advent, well let's just say right now, how many articles have you seen about CBD and marijuana? And saying it helps with anxiety, it helps with high blood pressure, it helps with cancer. 
Uh, it's helping with seizures. And indeed, you're seeing in a lot of these studies effective use of the drug. And we want this thing to be the catch-all drug in order to save everybody. But let's also, and that and that could be a hippie going, hey, man, all you got, hey, look, man, you just smoke some weed and it's got geriatric effects. You're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier. You're, you're not, you're not poisoning yourself like with, with alcohol, you know, or it could be, it could be the pharmaceutical company looking at this and saying, so let me get this straight. All we need to do is produce one drug and it's going to alleviate all of these problems. Some people will say, well, that doesn't make any, yeah, the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't want to do that. They want to have a whole host of meds. Well, <clears throat> maybe nowadays that makes sense, but let's say you're a fledgling pharmaceutical company and you don't have a lot of money and you know that you want to have the right crops to grow and alleviate all the rest. Let's grow the least amount of things that will have the most effect on the most amount of people with the highest profit margin. And now we're talking a little bit about what pharmaceutical companies and Western medicine was dealing with and their philosophy in the 1800s. You see, the 1800s provided a huge advancement in medicine. Uh, just around the turn of the century, the 1790s, we started to see inoculations and the study of microbial research. Because of the advent of the microscope, you could actually study cells. So you could see that there were different types of cells, different body cells. You could not only see different styles of of cell specialization in the human body, but you could also start to study bacteria. We couldn't see viruses yet, but you could see bacteria. And this changed, I mean, you have to understand, it, up to this point, it, it was by far and large a witch doctor type of treatment of many illnesses. I mean, we're talking, they're still bleeding people out and thinking that's going to help. They're trying out medications that are found in the woods and the jungles, talking to chieftains of different tribes um, and 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 people that are home remedy doctors. When you think about like the pioneers that are coming across the plains, there were people that still studied those plants and, and many times were using those. They didn't they didn't have the medication at the local pharmacy. And they didn't even know what that medication would be. They didn't know what an antibiotic would be. They, who would have thought, okay, before Fleming, was it Fleming who produced antibiotic penicillin for the first time? Who would have thought, well, moldy bread, right, could kill off harmful bacteria by using a stronger benign bacteria? Up to that point, that seems insane. In fact, like, you imagine feeding someone moldy bread? This is just at the point where they started to see, like with Louis Pasteur, sterile surgical practices and sterile medicine was more beneficial than non-sterile treatments. That, you know, they used to have black smocks on because they would just wipe the blood off their hands onto the black smock so you couldn't see it. And so this, this whole world of of sterile practices, of studying cells. All of this stuff was completely new. And furthermore, they wouldn't come to bacterial the, uh, invention and distribution until the 30s and 40s. So the big thing is killing people then. Influenzas, pneumonias, tuberculosis, a huge percentage of these caused respiratory illnesses. They caused edema or fluid to build up inside the lungs. They caused fever and they eventually, in many cases, produced drowning. You drowned on your own fluids and you died. And because of that, there were huge amounts, myriads of, of companies trying to find some kind of cure-all medication 
that could take care of respiratory diseases. Another huge factor, as always, has been war. And how do you deal with soldiers that are injured in war? Do we have pain medication for that? Remember, this is the time of biting the bullet while they sawed your arm off. Putting a piece of leather in your mouth, slugging down as much whiskey as they had in the camp. Hopefully so you passed out so they could cut your arm off with you being somewhat altered so that you wouldn't feel the pain. Pain medication was in short order. And they needed something that could be potent, that could be distributed in a large quantity, but not used in such a large quantity, meaning a little bit would go a long way. Usually, it was alcohol. Ether, at this point, started to gain vogue, but ether was dangerous. People would overdose very quickly and could get violently ill and they could die. Opium was around, but it required you smoking it and it didn't put you into such a paralysis or such a obtunded position that you wouldn't feel it. And it was just the, the logistics of getting it to everyone and getting it to doctor stations, aid stations, was more, more work than made sense. And even with the advent of morphine in about the 1850s, um, it was still such a high, high-priced drug that it wasn't distributed on a high rate around the world. You also remember at this point, they're starting to make hypodermic needles where we could go in and inoculate someone with them as well as give them medication directly into the bloodstream. So studies went into morphine and trying to find that essential drug that's inside it to make it perfect, to get that one potent part of the drug and synthesize that and create something that you could use on a large scale, with a small amount. And heroin fell neatly into the category that solved all of these problems. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned is also a rampant epidemic, rampant epidemic around the world, which was opium and subsequently morphine abuse. And if they could find one drug that could take care of that, wouldn't that also be perfect? To find a, a drug that could solve pain, respiratory illness, and while you're at it, solve addiction. In 1874, a chemist by the name of C.F. Alder Wright was studying the effects of morphine and trying to distill it down into its most essential parts and discovered a compound that he called tetraacetylmorphine, which now is known as diacetylmorphine or heroin. He started trying it out and he sent some samples to his friend F.M. Pierce, who was another colleague of his at Owens College, for more studies. Pierce studied it with different animals, dogs and horses mostly, and reported the following results to Wright. One, great prostration. This is, this is a quote from him, meaning sleeping. <clears throat> Fear, initially. Sleepiness, speedily followed by laziness. The eyes being sensitive and the pupils dilated. Considerable salivation being produced in dogs and slight tendency to vomiting in some cases, but no actual emesis, meaning they were gagging or retching, but they're not actually throwing anything up. And uh, if you've ever talked to anybody who's taken heroin, or in some cases some morphine, people just say, I just get really nauseous, and I feel like I'm just going to throw up. So very similar results here. Respiration at first quickened, but subsequently reduced, 
and the heart's action was diminished and rendered irregular. Horses, on the other hand, had a converse reaction. They would run uncontrollably, they would run uncontrollably, froth at the mouth, and exert themselves into exhaustion, and in some cases, death. And they actually believe, because of the experimentation and the strange effects that it has on horses, that's one of the reasons why we uh, call heroin horse. came from that point. In the last decade of the 19th century, Dresser and other investigators studied psychological effects and physiological effects of diacetylmorphine. The favorable reports of these investigators, along with the growing interest in the drug shown by the medical profession at that time, led to the mass production of the drug. They further noticed that there was profound relief in respiratory distress in patients suffering from tuberculosis, asthma, pneumonia, and it showed some kind of promise as a curative drug for lung disease or a Lungers, if you've seen, uh, was that Tombstone? Give me a lunger. Doc had tuberculosis. I think you knew that. And there's also an interesting, um, if you were to watch that movie again, pay attention to where Powers Booth goes into that opium den where they're lying around in cots all around the candle in the middle of the room. That's what a typical opium den looked like. There's also a movie by Antonioni called Once Upon a Time in America with Robert De Niro and James Woods. Check that movie out. If you haven't seen that, it's a long one, but it's a great one. But there's a, there's a seat in an opium den there. Here's an interesting fact about those opium dens. They had a big candle in the middle and you had your opium pipe and you would, you would roll over and use that. They're all kind of in a circle. All the people were in a circle around this candle. And you would, you would lean over between your highs once you started to kind of come around again and just lean over on your hip and had another bowl of opium. And that's where the term hip came from. Like, if you're hip, are you going to opium dens and getting high on opium? Hey, man, are you hip? Comes from that. Interesting. I, I love the genealogy of things. And so I always try and pepper a little bit here and there because I just, I feel like it's, you know, that's where the history is. It's like, it's in the culture. And this is a cultural drug as crazy and as a, adverse to the human condition as it is. It's still endemic and it's always going to be a part of us. So this drug was showing signs of respiratory um, cure curative effects on respiratory illnesses. People would stop hacking and hacking and they were able to just kind of rest and take a breath and they would be able to cough up what was inside their lungs. Maybe hack that up. Also, morphine has the ability to lower the blood pressure just a little bit, particularly in the veins. And so if you had fluid in your lungs, your veins would open up and cause space in the pulmonary veins so that that fluid would have a place to drain out and get out of the lungs. And so all of a sudden, these people that were drowning, in some cases, on their own edema, on their own fluid, suddenly now could breathe easier. Think about that. Now people look at this going, already this is curing all of these respiratory illnesses. What the heck, man? Furthermore, it's super potent. You have to give a short, a, 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 a small dose of heroin to patients, and it's going to have a profound effect on them. Also, because of the way it's distilled, the half-life or the amount of acting time of that drug is much shorter than morphine, where morphine lasts, let's say, an hour to two hours. Heroin lasts about a half hour to an hour. So it's not as easy to overdose them. They're going to come off of it quicker. Another part about that was, well, doctors thought it's potent. If they're in pain, we can give them this drug and then a half an hour later, see how they are. And if they need a little bit more, we can give them a little bit more. But we're not going to have these long-term pain patients that will have the time to develop an addiction to this drug. And just maybe because of that, we're going to decrease the amount of recidivism in habitual addicts. 
So we're seeing the drug can help with respiratory illnesses, life and death respiratory illness. It can solve your pain problems with a lesser dose and you can measure it out in smaller doses to patients. And because of that, if they were to become addicts on something like morphine, well, we're not giving them as much. And maybe they just won't become the addicts and we will solve the opiate epidemic along with the pain and respiratory disease epidemics that are facing the country. So this drug starts to look more and more like the wonder drug that will cure everything. And I swear you will see there are, there are advertisements for heroin cough drops for kids that are having asthma. Okay. I mean, for anybody that's having problems, give them a little heroin, see if that helps, see if that changes anything. And because of that, let's say you're that fledgling pharmaceutical company. What are you going to try and start to synthesize on your own? A slew of different medications that does a little bit here, and then this one does this one there, or this one does that one, or you have to take these two in tandem with this. Or maybe we just focus all of our time and energy and money on one drug. In Eberfield, Germany, the Bayer Company, as in Bayer Aspirin, started mass production of the compound on a commercial scale. This is in 1898. And the compound was marketed for the first time as heroin, which in the German term, in the German word, heroisch, means large, powerful, extreme, or one with profound effect, even in small doses. And it was the small doses that everyone was hoping was going to solve the problems, right? Well, ironically, that's what caused all the problems. Because heroin, albeit more more potent, didn't last as long. And so those morphine addicts, or people that had had heroin and then went to morphine to come off of it, were not getting the same kind of pain relief or the same kind of high. And so they would, instead of just taking a little bit of heroin and then going away and tapering away, they were looking to get more and more doses of heroin. And because of that, you start to see a huge increase in heroin use across the cities, uh, a giant exponential spike in crime, if you will, and in addiction. So officials, particularly police departments, began compiling data on criminals and they found staggering correlations. In 1922, while there were 17 murders committed in London, there were 260 in New York City. And heroin addiction was blamed for a number of New York murders. There is a uh, special deputy commissioner, Carlton Simon, who said, this is in 1924, quote, 94% of the criminal drug addicts arrested in New York City use heroin regularly, placing the consumers receiving their drug from the illicit narcotic street vendors in New York City at a minimum of 10,000, using an average of 10 grains a day per individual. We have a total of 76,000 units or ounces as a yearly quantity of heroin used by narcotic addicts who procure their drugs on the streets in New York City alone. There was already a worldwide conference addressing the issues and rise of undocumented production of dis and distribution of heroin at this time. There were already worldwide conferences starting to address the issue of the heroin epidemic. And <clears throat> think about this. This started to happen in the midst of World War I. There was a Hague Opium Convention of 1912. And what it sought to do was limit the amount of distributed heroin from the countries that were legally producing it so that it, we could have some kind of regulations on the drug. See, it was still legal. You could produce it. But we tried to limit the amount that was being distributed. So, well... And again, this happened in 1925. They tried to further this in the Geneva Convention, uh, stating that we needed to make one of the first times you, you see 
what's called Schedule 1 drugs classification on heroin, meaning it needs to be it needs to be watched from the time of production to distribution. Because each country would kind of deal with it on their own. This is before the League of Nations and way before the UN. And some countries would say, well, we can't do that because this is a huge amount of money that comes to us, but we'll abide by the distribution limitations that you are laying out. So what happened to that extra heroin that they produced? Most of that was getting filtered in the black market. And we start to think about places like Turkey, across the Middle East, that are making the drug, but they're not going to just limit the amount that they produce. They're going to sell off the, the limit that they're allowed to sell legally and then filter the rest through a black market. And now, if you think about what you know about your history, even if you get it from movies where I get most of my stories and then backtrack into Wikipedia, which then actually backtracks finally into some academia. Think about what you know about the mafia, the black hand. When do they get most of their power and money? It's during legal regulation of illegal substances, of illegal activity, be it gambling or drug or alcohol distribution and production. And all of these countries that were legally allowed to create heroin would then sell their remainder illegal quantities to the mafia. And if you think about the godfather, well, Salazzo's a Turk, and he controls most of the heroin production because Turkey was producing huge amounts of heroin. And they needed a way to get it into the United States and the rest of Europe. They relied on the mainland mafia to do business with in order to get that remainder into the cities for profit. And you saw what happened when Vito went against the Turk and the eventual uh, decision to go along with worldwide black hand operations and start to distribute heroin into the inner cities or anywhere that you could get a buyer. This is what our story of American drug use is. It's the fact that if there's someone that wants a drug, there will be means to get it to them, and there will always be a profit. And if it's not legal, it will be illegal. And in many ways, that illegal distribution will be linked to the legal. The illegals will always be in some sort of cahoots. So, we see this happening. There's even a further limitation conference by the League of Nations in 1931 to all-out state that heroin is a non-medically beneficial drug. Some cities, some countries fall in line with that, saying, yes, we believe we will not create or distribute heroin. A few select countries state we will still produce it at a minimum amount and distribute it through a watched uh, system of Schedule 1 responsibility and make sure that everything is accounted for. But by far and large, the largest amount of medication of heroin gets into the cities illegally. And it's going into lower-income places where people have a need for it. Again, we get to this endemic problem of the meaninglessness and the hopelessness of these people's lives and the need for some kind of mental and physical respite. Ghettos, uh, rural areas. Uh, places where people are factory workers, where they really don't have much autonomy, and they're really just a cog in the gears. You start to see heroin rise in those areas. Now, this is up until World War I, and we thought, we'll put these regulations on there, and we'll see what happens. But as I said, there's always going to be a larger market, even if it's illegal, for people to get their drug 
and for people distributing it to make money. Now wait and see what happens in the 30s. And then even after that, when pop culture and war occur in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the, again, rise of heroin into the 20th century pop culture. I said before, uh, if there's anyone out there that can benefit from talking to someone about drug addiction and recovery, please call the Recovery Village at 844-289-5085. It's all 100% confidential. Again, Recovery Village, 844-289-5085. And listen, if you got a problem, get it fixed. Don't fix yourself. Don't cook up. Go find another answer. There's people that are always standing by to help. Hey, listen, if you got it in you, use it. All right, I love you, and I'll talk to you again on the second installment regarding life and heroin use after World War I.